We are, uh, we're going to finish chapter 1 today, so that's good news. That'll put us a quarter of the way through the book of Philippians. Uh, so thank you guys for, for being patient as we've gone through it. I hope it has been an encouragement to you, and I hope it has also been challenging to you as we've gone through this book together. Uh, last week we, we did the second half of verse 18 through verse 26. And if you remember, the, the, the center point of that passage, can we bring me down just a little bit? The center point of that passage was verse 21, where Paul writes, and he says, For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And so this is his heart cry. As he writes the Philippians, he's, he's expressing his desire to go and to see them. He says, guys, one of two things is going to happen. He says, certainly I'm going to be freed, I'm going to have deliverance, but that's going to come about by one of two ways. I'm either going to be executed, or I'm going to be freed. But as he looks at that situation and he evaluates it, he says, you know what? For me to live is Christ, and to die is to gain even more Christ. And so the heartbeat of Paul is, whatever happens to him doesn't matter because in the one sense, to live, his life would be full of Christ, and to die, he would gain union with Christ. And so today, as we're in verses 27 through 30, we're going to see Paul carry on this discussion of, of you know, whether or not he's going to get to come visit the Philippians. So let me read uh, for you verses 27 through 30. If you don't have a Bible, that we, we go read from the ESV, it'll be up on the screen, and we have Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. And if you don't have one, uh, that could be a great gift to you. So feel free to take that home and you could be like, look, I've got a souvenir. Uh, so that would be, would be good for you. Let me read starting in verse 27. Paul writes, he says, Only let your matter, matter of, wow, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. And so Paul writes this, this group of people, he writes these Philippians and says, uh, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Well, this phrase, let your manner of life, translates one word. And that word communicates this idea of citizenship. And so it's kind of interesting when, when Paul writes this to them and he takes this word, and what he's telling them is, he says, you need to be good citizens. Now this works on a couple of levels. We've talked about it. They're in Philippi. They're in this, this city that's comprised of Roman citizens. It's soldiers who have retired and have come there to live. And so, man, being a citizen in the Roman Empire, big deal. Really big deal. You know, we don't really feel it as much, but being, a, being an American citizen is a big deal. I mean, if you travel around very much in the world, there are a lot of people that would love to be American citizens. And we have this natural bent towards uh, kind of self-aggrandizement, thinking highly of ourselves and of our country. Well, if we have that a little bit, these folks were, were perfect at it. 
And so when we start talking about being a good citizen, their thoughts might go towards Rome and, 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 and really start thinking, yeah, I need to be a good citizen. I need to be, I need to be a good citizen. And as we read earlier in chapter 1, when Paul writes to them, he says, you need to be blameless and pure. And so we know that Paul's already concerned with how people in the community, how people in the marketplace view the people in this church. So this, this message works on two levels. In the one sense, he tells them, you need to be good citizens. You need to, in as much as you can, be about developing a good name in the marketplace so that people see you and you develop a good name for your God in the marketplace. But there's a second level at work and a primary level at work. And that is that your mind be directed towards your heavenly citizenship. You see, our temptation, especially as we roll into an election year, is to be so bombarded by all those things that, that we have to do and abide by to be a good citizen. And so it's, it's vetting candidates. It's keeping apprised of the debates that are ongoing. It's trying to read between the lines that, you know, this candidate says that this candidate, you know, kicks puppies. And this candidate says, no, it's the other guy that kicks puppies. And you're like, somebody's taking a puppy out there, and I know it's one of you. Or, or perhaps none of them. Perhaps they both have the same spin doctor that's kicking out this message. That they were on the way to the campaign trail, and they saw someone kick a puppy. And they said, wouldn't it be something if that other candidate had kicked a puppy? You see, but our minds need to be directed, need to be focused on our allegiance to Christ. We need to carry in this verse 21 mentality that says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And for the Philippians, they needed to to continue to ensure that people saw that their ultimate allegiance was not to Caesar, who was referred to as Lord and Savior, but that their allegiance was tied to their true Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Paul tells them, he says, man, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. If there's ever been just a a more packed phrase, what a challenge. Let your life be worthy of, of the gospel. And so they receive this word and they have the understanding that none is worthy of the gospel. None of us can do enough good, can do enough right things, can, can not kick enough puppies, can help enough people across the street, can tithe enough, can serve enough, can pray enough to be worthy of the gospel. But man, that's the call. That's the challenge. That's the drive that we pursue with tenacity, being worthy of the gospel. And this is all about putting sin to death in our lives. We need to consciously be about the task of putting sin to death in our lives. Lust, envy, greed. Man, as you look at your life, you, you, you're pretty good under, you have a pretty good understanding of what your particular sin is. And the message is, kill it. You need to be about the business of putting that sin to death. Or that sin 
is going to destroy you. He wants them to recognize their utter dependence upon Christ. You see, the gospel is the good news that Jesus came to provide them freedom from sins and access to God. And that's what he wants them to focus on. And it's interesting, is he, in the passage last week, and he talked about you know, coming to see them, and he knew that he would remain because that was more necessary for them. Then he moves on in the second half of verse 27. He says, So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So he says, all right, guys. Now, there, there is a chance that I'm not going to come see you. There is a chance that I'm not going to make it back to Philippi. And that was the idea that he might be executed. He just doesn't know. But the word he writes to them, he says, look, whether I come to you guys or not, I want to hear a good report from you. So your behavior isn't dependent upon Paul coming back. It's not like, you know, their parents are away and so they're throwing this house party and then they get the word that Paul's coming back. They're like, man, we have got to straighten this stuff up. What are we going to do with the coffee table? Why did we throw that guy through the coffee table? How are we going to get this stain out of the carpet? How are we going to get this sin that has so ingrained our lives out before Paul gets back? Man, you know, we can cut loose a little bit why Paul's not here. But when he comes back, it's straight and narrow time. You see, the word that Paul gives them is, it's not dependent upon Paul. It's not dependent upon me to come back and communicate this message to you. You need to be about the business of putting sin to death. And the message that I need to hear about you is that God is being glorified. He writes and he says that you're standing firm. We see this, the same verbiage used in Exodus 14, 13, when the Egyptian army is coming down upon the Israelites, and they're, they're, they're shaking, and they're trembling, and they're scared to death, and they're thinking, man, we just experienced a little bit of freedom, really don't want to go back to Egypt yet. And Moses turns to them, and his word is, stand firm. You see, in the midst of amazing uh, persecution, and for them, impending death, Moses' word wasn't, take out sword and prepare to fight. It wasn't, uh, you know, gird your loins, boys, we're running now. It was stand firm. Stand firm. But we stand firm, not upon my understanding that, man, when these people get close to me, I'm going to straight up sucker punch them in the face, and they're not going to see it coming. Or what they don't know is that I'm packing heat. Uh, So when they come close, it's... It's over with. But we stand firm. We're bold because of the work that God has done in our lives. So this firmness that we have is based upon the work that God has done. We're fixed. We're not moving. He said, be standing still in one spirit. Now as you break this out, there's two possible ways that we can look at it. So there's obvious. When, when we go through it and, and we see a reference to the spirit, what is that a reference to in the Bible typically? Maybe that was a tough question. I've, I've realized this week that uh, I met with the Sasses and met with Logan. That, and I told Kelly and Charles, I said, not great with kids. Um, I've never dropped one, but my questions tend to be a little difficult. Um, let me set this up a little better. Uh, 
Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? Okay, we're clear on that. Okay, so when we're reading through the Bible and we see a reference uh, to the Spirit, uh, what, what, what do you think that probably is sometimes? Man, you guys are smart. And so there's that, right? And so, but there's also this idea of, you know, kind of team spirit and camaraderie, and we want to be of one spirit, one, you know, kind of rallying cry, and be like, Rah! that's the cry that when they rally. Um, and so he tells them, he says, I want you to stand firm with one spirit. Now, obviously, there's only one Holy Spirit. There's not a, a multitude of spirits out there. There's one Holy Spirit. And so what he could be telling them is, he says, what you need to recognize is that there's one spirit that's sovereign in your life. And that is what you draw a line on. That is what you focus on. And so when you stand together, you're not standing together under a multiplicity of gods and understanding what you're standing on, what you're standing firm on, is your relationship with God as you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Or it could be that he's writing them and he's saying, you know what, you guys need to have the same attitude. You need to have the same understanding that no matter what faces you, that you face it all with one spirit, one understanding, as one cohesive group. You see, both of these things result in the same impression, though. These people are standing firm, and there is no differentiating between one person and the next because they all have one goal in mind. They all have one direction in mind. And he goes on, he says, with one mind striving for the faith. Side by side for the faith of the gospel. You see, Paul here paints a picture not of of, of this wall where you've got one person here and you've got one person here and then you've got one person over here, but of this cohesive group. Did, did any of you see the picture this week uh, at Texas A&M when that, there was going to be a funeral at Central Baptist and the Aggies formed a wall to prevent the Westboro Baptist Church from coming? Dee's shaking his head and he's thinking, how could Aggies get anything together, let alone understand what a line is? <clears throat> but I fear they actually have quite a good uh, engineering program. And so Westboro Baptists, they go and they, they protest at soldiers' funerals, and they, they have signs that have some inflammatory language on them. Um, and they, try, they disrupt these services. Well, there is going to be a soldier laid to rest, and the services are going to be held at Central Baptist and College Station, and this one Aggie, this one student, got it in his mind that there's no way that they would be able to make it past them. And so the picture that made it into this news is, I believe it's over 500 students gathered, and they, they formed a wall to prevent this being disrupted. You see, this is a great reflection in a picture for how you and I should be. That we stand shoulder to shoulder, striving together. To, the, to advance the gospel, striving together to advance this faith. But you know, it necessarily means certain things. If we're standing side by side, if we're standing shoulder to shoulder, then we have to have one mind. Can't have preferences. We absolutely can't have preferences. Because preferences 
are opposed to this unification, this unity that we see here. You see, when we have preferences over, over music, and in the next few weeks we are going to have to find somebody to take Brent's place. But in your mind, if you say, what we need is a person that will stand and sing Southern Gospel, and that's what this church needs. Or if you stand and you say, what we need is somebody to do contemporary songs, and we need more electric guitar. Or if you stand and you say, really anything other than what we need is unity. And what we need is to stand together. And quite simply, if you're advocating anything other than unity... You're in the wrong. You're absolutely in the wrong. You see, there's no place for preference in this. Paul doesn't write them and say, you know what? Gather up the best people. Gather up the most talented. Gather up the people that have the most potential to carry on the church there. And and stand with those guys. One, because they're attractive and people like to hang out with attractive people. Two, because I've heard they sing really well. And we like to have good songs. So as we're standing firm, those are the people that we want. Friends, we're all sinners. In the eyes of God, none of us is worthy to do anything. But the awesome word that he gives us is that we stand firm together with one spirit. And that we strive together with one mind. Not separate, not advancing agendas, but man, that we're all pushing together in the same direction. Are you on board for that? Are you on board for that? I want everybody to repeat after me. I have no preference but to advance the gospel. Say it one more time with conviction this time. I have no preference. But to advance the gospel. I've got that recorded, and we have videos facing this way. So. If you schedule a meeting with me to talk about something, I have a great idea. Uh, I'm really into samba music. I really think we can incorporate that. I'm going to play it back and be like, well, you said no preference but the gospel. I said, I did, but I also, also mouth with samba music. I love samba. It's great. Um, so he paints this picture of striving together. You know, they had, they had an active presence that was seeking to tear them down. They had an active presence that was seeking to tear them down. As Christians, and simultaneously as citizens in the Roman Empire, they were asked to do things that were opposed to their belief set. You see, to be a Roman was to, to worship Caesar. It was to be, a part, to be involved in this emperor cult. And they just couldn't do that. And so because of that, because they looked different, because they did different things, there were those who were automatically against this group of believers. And this is Paul's word to them. He says, Stand side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. He's already told them, stand firm. Now he's telling them, you know, stand together and and just don't be afraid. Now this word he's, he's using here doesn't paint the idea that you know, you're looking for the, uh, the infidel underneath every bush or you're you know, just you know, terrified, but it paints the picture of being startled, of being 
you know, easily startled. And it was used most, most often to describe horses. Now, when I was growing up, we had a horse who really just embodied what it is to be frightened. And appropriately, appropriately enough, this, this big buckskin horse, his name was Ghost. Um, I didn't name him somebody else with a, with a better sense of humor than a seven-year-old did. And so his name was Ghost, and man, just a pleasure to ride, really easygoing. But anytime you would get off of this horse, you know, you put the, the reins up on the saddle, I mean, a twig could break three parishes away. I lived in Louisiana, so parishes are like counties, but with a P, and spelled a little bit differently. So three parishes away, a twig breaks, and this horse is like, <laughs> and we just take off running uh, for the barn. And you're like, what in the world happened? This sucker was easily frightened. He was easily startled. And so it paints this picture of being spooked, of being disturbed. And so Paul's word to them, it says, look, people are after you. That's a comforting word, isn't it? You're like, just a reminder, uh, people are after you. Don't be paranoid, but they're coming for you. May or may not get you, but they are coming for you. But his word to them is, man, don't. Don't let anything startle you. Don't let anything spook you, knock you off course. But stay the course. Not frightened in anything. Not frightened in anything by your opponents, those who are actually opposed to the gospel. And then he's got this kind of cryptic uh, second half of verse 28. We kind of see two fates at play. And he says, This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Okay, so what we see here is Paul writes and he says, don't be frightened in anything. Now, a plain reading of this leads us to believe that there's going to be people that, that are opposed to you. They're going to see you not be frightened. And that's going to trigger in their mind that said, oh, snap, the game is up. They're standing firm together in one mind with one soul and spirit. We're hosts. Let's just go home. I mean, that, that seems to be the clear reading, right? that people recognize that they're all standing firm together, and then they just they pack up their tools of torture, and they go home and just say, you know, we really came to destroy these guys, and, and to, to be their opponents. We had shirts printed that say, opponents of uh, Philippian Christians. But we showed up, and they're all, I mean, it's like solidarity time over there. They must have gotten a letter from that guy Paul again. But that doesn't make much sense, does it? You see, because when people are just bent on destruction, then we've seen times where no matter how much unity we have, we still receive persecution. We still receive torment at the hands of those who are opposed to us. So Paul wasn't writing them and saying, hey, look, this is a foolproof way to avoid your opponents. What you need to do is get like-minded people together, stand together, maybe this wall. Years later, some students at A&M are going to take this idea and they're going to protest against the Westboro Baptists. But what you need to do is stand together and they're going to see that. And you talk about people being easily frightened and spooked. Those people are going to take their clubs and they're going to go home. You see, if, if that was the understanding they came to, then when they actually faced persecution, they would have written Paul a response back and be like, Initial plan didn't work. Please send other suggestions. But what Paul's saying to them there, Paul's speaking directly to the Christians there, and what his point is, 
is when people oppose you. This is an, a confirmation that you are of Christ. When people oppose you and they persecute you, when you stand out as a Christian and this persecution happens, it's a confirmation that you're a Christian. And for them, for those that are opposing you, this for them speaks of their destruction. This for them speaks of their opposition to the gospel. This for them communicates hell and death. Paul says, but for you, this speaks of salvation. This speaks of salvation. But what we see is both of these things are from God. He says, and both from God. The destruction that some are opposed to the gospel, and because of that, they spend an eternity in hell. They're opposed to God. But on the other hand, we see that the Christians have received salvation, and that from God, and they are saved into eternity. And in verses 29 and 30, Paul says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer. Did I read that right? Suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. You know, there are certain, certain gifts when you're a Christian that everybody just lines up to get. You know, you look at Galatians 5.22 and you're like, love, want it, joy, love it, uh, peace, gotta have it. I don't sing. Uh, well, anyway, uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And we're like, man, I want that. If, if Walmart had that on an aisle, I would shop there all the time, even on Saturdays when it's really busy. And I would take my kids and let them scream because I, I want those things. But when we look at this, and on the one hand we see, oh, this is fantastic, that they have received faith. They have received the ability to believe from God. And they read that and they say, that's fantastic. You're so right, Paul. God has given us faith. He has given us the ability to believe. But then as he continues to write, and he says, it's been granted to you, it's been given to you, that you should suffer for his sake. That you're suffering for Christ's sake. You see, this is where it gets difficult. This is the gift that they say, I'm really good with the belief and faith thing. Um, I don't want my cup to run over. You can take the suffering back. Um, I mean, I, I would like it if you would take the suffering back, Paul. Paul but Paul's mindset and what he's communicating to the Philippians is, man, do you realize what a privilege, what an honor it is to suffer for Christ, to suffer for his name, that he might be made famous? You see, Paul's not writing and saying that there are those of you that are sick, there are those of you that are, you know, for whatever reason you have, you have birth effects, that you've, you, you're suffering all these things. You see, because to suffer those things is just by virtue of the fact that we live in a fallen and depraved world. And that, that, that our world is corrupted, and that's why we face those things. But the persecution Paul is talking about happens because we're standing for Jesus. It happens because we're standing for Jesus. 
So Paul says, it has been granted to you, not only that you believe, but also that you have a chance to suffer for Jesus. And then to encourage them, he says, guys, this is exactly the same thing that you saw me go through. Do you remember our first week in Philippians when we read the backstory in Acts 16? And Paul, Paul's going out and he leads Lydia and he leads some others to Christ. And he, he talks to this slave girl and she comes to Christ. And the guys that owned her are really just hacked off then because they've, Paul has ruined their business venture and this girl who could predict the future. And they take Paul before the magistrates and they have him beaten, they have him stripped, and they have him thrown in jail. Paul says, you guys saw that happen to me. And you know that the Roman Empire is still against me as I sit in jail and I write this to you. But now, you are getting an opportunity to share in the suffering as well. You know, there may come a day when you and I suffer in this country for our faith. Right now, we still have great freedoms to worship, to, to speak the gospel, to share our faith with those around us. And we need to be about the business of doing that every day. But you see, the call for us in this passage is to unity. The call for us in this passage that Paul gives us is one of, of being together so that no matter what happens, no matter what we face, we're standing together as we face it. And we need to reprimand those in this body that stand in the way of unity and love so that they might be brought back into this as well. We don't tolerate anybody that would disrupt unity because the gospel's at stake because our reflection in the community is at stake and because salvation is at stake let me pray for us